This is episode 216 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Reflections with Amy Rigby. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we'd like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. Bill Aho and I are so excited today to welcome a new guest to the show. Amy Rigby is with us. So welcome, Amy. Hi. I'm going to use a little biographical information to introduce you. Sorry to put you through this. Amy was born near Pittsburgh. It's funny, we had Ben Vaughn on the show last week, and he is born in Philadelphia. So I guess we're covering Pennsylvania this month. Yes, yes. He's the other end of the state. Yeah, right. (laughs) Amy was raised Catholic, which colors her writing, I think would be fair to say. She moved to New York City in the late 70s. And as a teenage denizen of CBGB who fell in love with country songwriting, started the band's last roundup and the Shams in New York City's East Village. The Shams were an all-female band described as Riot Girls Unplugged, which I liked, but even better was Beauty Parlor Soul, which came (laughs) from uh, Richard Hell. That was fun. Amy then launched a solo career as a singer-songwriter with her debut album, Diary of a Mod Housewife, which was a very critically acclaimed. She sets the small details and truths of everyday life to vivid music on her Gibson acoustic and six and 12 string electric guitars and takes listeners to places they don't expect. What a great uh, description. Uh, Her song, Don't Break the Heart, has been recorded by Laura Cantrell, and they might be giants. And All I Want by Ronnie Spector, who included it on her album, The Very Best of Ronnie Spector. What a what a nice uh, kudo. Yeah. Uh, Amy has contributed writing to The Village Voice, Talk House and Slate. And her first book, Girl to City, a memoir, was published in 2019. I also noticed uh, with amusement that uh, you were on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, one of my heroes. So, Bill, uh, the challenge is out for us today to do better than Terry Gross. Oh, wow. Well, I, could, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't see Terry, so you've got a, you've got a little bit of an advantage exactly. there. Exactly. We're already winning. <laughs> <laughs> the Chicago Reader described Amy as one of the country's best songwriters with a mordant wit and keen eye for emotional detail. I thought that was great. And then um, about the debut album, Diary of a Mod Housewife, the Philadelphia Inquirer described it as being on the short list of grown-up rock and roll records that examine monogamy with insight and intelligence. I thought that was really great. Wow. I wonder who said that. So yeah, somebody at the Philadelphia Inquirer, big fan. So short story here, when Bill mentioned you, I was like, Amy Rigby, I know that name. (laughs) And then I discovered that I had 
several of your songs in my collection and they came from mixtapes from, of all people, my mother. Wow. <laughs> and so, of course, I had to write to my mother and say, oh, my gosh, I mean, Rigby's going to come on the show. And so she wrote back. And so right up there with Philadelphia Inquirer and Chicago Reader is my mother's review. And she wrote back. She said, I have a ton of her songs in my collection. I love, love her songs. Wow. Irony, sweetness, minor keys, musically and lyrically sophisticated, and no whining. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. My mom. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great, that's a great one. I should put that in my, (laughs) my quote list. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Jeff's mom. So, so uh, she particularly likes your debut album, Diary of a Mod Housewife, which was highly acclaimed and is just terrific. And so I wanted to ask you, looking back now, how do you, how do you feel about that album? How do you think about that album now? Well, I had a chance, um, I guess it was now six years ago, uh, I was going to press it on vinyl because it had never come out mm. on vinyl. And, and yeah, it was sort of seemed, seemed like it would be a fun thing to do. And it was, I think, maybe the 20th anniversary. And so I had to really kind of engage with the record again. Um, and, you know, it actually fit perfectly on side A and side B, um, you know, track listing was just right and it was really good to to hear it again i i i felt really uh proud of it felt a kind of it was made uncomfortable by it by the rawness of of some of the lyrics and just like the music and the vocals i i felt like it was something that i did at a time in my life i couldn't ever really do again, like it was of its moment, but it felt kind of timeless. And so I I felt, I felt proud of it really. Yeah, that's really, yeah. I'm always so curious how work ages for the artist, him or herself, but it is really a fabulous album where we're such big fans of that kind of music. Back in the day, I guess you were quite the, uh, person going to all these places of musical history back in New York and CBGB's is a place you've mentioned a few times in a few of your stories and articles and stuff and what, what was it like like back then going to the the shows there well um I, and I I wrote about this in my book when I could vividly remember it now it's all <laughs> kind of <laughs> it's, all, it's all kind of starting to fade away so i'm glad i wrote i'm glad i wrote it down when it was still really clear but um like i was going to parsons to um to art college in new york city and they had advised us that we were not to go to that part of the city because it was so lawless and just you know decrepit and dangerous basically um so so there was there felt like something very rebellious about actually even going to the bowery and um so just going down that street which now is all let's see hotels and restaurants and stuff but back then really was just like bums sleeping in doorways and trash you know spilling out of <laughs> those metal trash cans you know, just going 
through that part of town to enter into this kind of mythic place. At, at that point, it already was to me. I'd heard about it. I'd read about it. Um, but uh, it was a dump. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you're pulling but it, out one of those songwriting words, <laughs> <laughs> but it really, you know, it, it, it felt like home, uh, mm-hmm. just like immediately felt comfortable, felt like, oh, I, I didn't think I would fit in here. I, I, around the same time, someone invited me to studio 54 and I felt completely, separate and like these are not my people this is not my scene but with cbgb i just felt right away like i for whatever reason i'm a misfit i i fit in here and um i just ended up going going there really you know way more than i should have because i was in college but (laughs) did you ever get to play there uh, I did not in the not in the seventies, which yeah was kind of, you know the 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 punk heyday, and saw some great shows there. But I didn't play there uh, until the early eighties um, when I had a band, uh, Last Roundup. We played there. We played there a couple times, and um, by then the booking policy was yeah it was pretty well. It, it always was kind of random, um, but in the in the 80s it got kind of more uh yeah like it was i guess at that point you'd call it like indie or something it was less it was kind of moving away from what you'd think of as punk um it was quite adventurous booking so last roundup played there with the go-betweens oh yeah uh, that australian band and oh, um, yeah they're fabulous yeah and a couple and a couple other shows with with sort of local almost you know they, they Sometimes people call it no wave, but um, yeah, just just varied bands from New York City, and uh, it was always and then and then my band, the Shams, played there too, and uh, it was it was always kind of a challenging place to play. I thought maybe maybe it was intimidating because of where it was, and I'd seen like the Ramones on stage there and Perubu and and television and Patti Smith. I'd seen like some of my heroes there. So that was intimidating. But also the 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 PA was really odd. The stage sound was kind of strange. And it was a kind of place that people always told you after like, oh, you guys sounded great. But while you're on stage, you're just like, oh my God, like I What's should happening? find I should find another thing to do because <laughs> I, I, I don't think we I don't think we know what we're doing up here. But um <laughs> nerve wracking. Yes. Yeah. So you've had this long career in the music business, um, but published the memoir that we mentioned in 2019. So what prompted you to decide that you wanted to document those early years? Well, I actually started with the idea for the book like many, many years ago. It was kind of shortly after Diary of a Mod Housewife came out. So this is like back in the late 90s. An agent, a book agent got in touch and said like oh you you should you know let's let's jump on this you should you should put out a a a book like what about something and this is what I thought too like a kind of er updated Irma Bombeck sort of (laughs) um you know I I love Irma Bombeck and those kind of mundane tales of you know just like 
getting dinner for the family and, you know, but they just were really, they were about bigger things. And I felt like that was kind of like my songs um, were. So I thought, you know, I'd throw something together like that. Well, it just like, I, it, it didn't happen that way. And I kind of, but I kept, I started writing online at that point. I started writing an online diary before they even started calling them blogs. I was documenting my, my first one began with a tour. I opened for Warren's Yvonne and I started with the first show for that. And, um, you know, just kind of wrote like some of the, just, you know, everyday kind of details, like what, what the coffee was like at the, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and kept on doing that. And I feel like I was just sort of learning to write basically and made some more attempts through the early two thousands to get an actual memoir going, but it really took me till, uh, I was living in rural France <laughs> and uh, it was just so kind of, there was really not a lot to do there except like look at cows across, you know, on a, <laughs> in a field. And um, so it was like a good, I think I finally had the headspace to, and my daughter had gone off to college and, you know, it was a different phase of my life. And maybe that, that point where, you know, all of us kind of start, you know, like looking back at, at what, what, where we've been, what we've done. And so I just kind of sat down and wrote a really long draft and it took me another 10 years to actually like shape it and, you know, work with an agent and work with an editor and, and just like, get it, get it done. So it was a really long, I'm sorry to go into like a long, long story, but it was a really long process. It wasn't like one day I just woke up and said, Oh, this would be fun. And two years later published the book. It was, it was a much longer harder process than that but but one that I even towards the end where I just thought like this is literally going to kill me but I've <laughs> worked so hard so long like I, I have to finish and even if no one ever reads a word it will have been worth it because I learned so much and kind of you know just understood so much about what um what my coming of age was and people in my life and experiences I'd been through that I'd probably framed in in a, in a negative way had kind of started to seem really valuable. Yeah, that's the that's the beauty of retro of introspection and retrospection, right? Yeah. So yeah, I I have to pop in here and say I think this often happens that the book industry turns to what looks like an interesting person and says, "Oh, can you just pop off this memoir?" not realizing that they're launching you on a fairly significant, you know, emotional journey, You're, right? And, that, and That's so true. That is so true. And I can only imagine for someone like you with the care that you take with your songwriting, because that's one of the things that makes your song so interesting is the word choice, you know, the phrases that you use, the images that you paint with those words. Yes, that they just didn't realize that they were talking to a real writer, right? Somebody who, you know, who, who's really well, I, good. I appreciate that. But I will say, like, really the opposite is true with songwriting for me. I don't take a lot of care. The words just pour out. They spill out like that. They come to me like it's like magic, whereas, like, book writing was just 
completely the opposite. And I felt much more, there's something about like the way music like moves through you or through, through me, you know, like that, that somehow it brings the words with it. And I know I'm not the only writer, um, songwriter who has experienced this. Um, if it if it feels like a lot of work, I'd probably just dump the idea because mm-hmm. it, it's more uh, the feeling just kind of comes comes out with the music and the words just all attached. And writing a book was was kind of the opposite. It was like every word had, felt like it had this weight because it didn't have the music there. Oh, that's really fascinating. The difference between writing songs yeah. and writing prose, right? Yeah, I never thought about that. Did you read a lot as a child? Where was writing something, you know, that you were interested in? Yes. Um, I've always been a huge reader. The library was like a huge part of my life as a kid and a big escape for me. And, you know, it was like the place I could walk to by myself and just mm-hmm. lose myself and and bookstores too. I just always loved, uh, I loved books and, um, we didn't really have a lot of them in my house growing up. We had like national geographic and, and uh, woman's day magazine <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, 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 and time and, ti- and time magazine and the world book encyclopedia. I mean, it's probably like a lot of suburban, yeah. you know, uh, American homes, but, um, but the library had everything. So, um, so I've always, I've always been a big, a big reader. And so that's maybe, maybe even writing a book was felt like more pressure. Cause I, cause I felt like I was, you know, following in the footsteps of these, these giants, you know, um, that I, that I, looked up to and yeah kind of like I said about playing on stage at CBGB's it's not it's not something I take lightly you know yeah well Bill and I were both so impressed to discover that Ronnie Spector had recorded one of your songs I I didn't realize that you know I sort of put you in different categories so that was very exciting to discover that she'd recorded that song so tell us how that came about well, you know, I, I had dreams of having, you know, a songwriting career of, of having other people record my songs. That was part of the reason I moved to Nashville and I did, you know, have a publishing deal and everything. And, but most of the covers I've had of my songs or all of them actually have come about through my own personal relationships and gigs and stuff. But, uh, so, so Ronnie Spector was, um, when I was still living in New York and she was uh, she was kind of on the scene a little bit in the late nineties. Some, some musicians that played with me were sometimes in her band. And um, I did a show opening for her at the bottom line in New York city. And I, you know, was kind of ballsy and on stage said, uh, introduce the song all I want by saying like, I think Ronnie should record this song. <laughs> you knew. That's and be- because, because, and I'm not really like a very, I'm like the opposite of a kind of pushy person. So like, that was pretty, pretty bold for me to say that. But when I wrote the song, her, her voice was in my head. I probably looking back now, I probably had 
fairly recently read her memoir, which came out, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s. And that's right around when I wrote that song. And um, so I just like heard it with her voice dictating to me. And so I kind of, you know, I think that I just felt like it was a perfect fit. So I didn't feel any like, you know, I didn't hesitate to just say like this song is for her. And so she like came right backstage to me and was like, I, I like that song. I, I want to record it. And I was just like, oh, wow. Like, of course you do. Uh-huh. I, <laughs> I knew. What, I, yeah, yeah, I knew I kinda, all along. <laughs> I, I kind of did. But it, it took a while. Um, so that was in probably in 98. And then I remember being at the um, there was a music conference for a little while for this publication called Rocker Girl, which was all about female musicians. And they'd have a conference in Seattle. And I think it was in 2000. I was there and Ronnie was the keynote speaker and her husband, Jonathan, who was her manager, like said, I, I have a rough mix of the of the song. And and he and he and I like got in <laughs> my rental car and he played played it for me um on on a I think it was a CD by that point it's hard oh. to remember which music for or was it cassette or a CD I think it was CD and um and you know just I just was so amazed you know just blown away uh to hear her voice actually doing what she did like on my song and and he was like oh yeah and the and the and the guitar there is Keith Richards and I was like wow. yeah that's right I forgot that part yeah that's right uh-huh. yeah. yeah so it was it was really like um that that was kind of the peak for me was like it hadn't been released or anything but just like hearing it come together like that was pretty incredible and and then it came out um on an album she put out in 2006 called last of the rock stars and that that was a cool album that had it was kind of like a little bit of a comeback for her it had came from what she had started doing with joey ramone in the in the late 90s she'd been doing some recording with him but of course he'd passed away by by the time this album came out but and then magically it ended up on the on the best of but you know i just just always kind of looked up to her she was just such a doll and my husband and I went to see her play in London two two Christmases ago and it was just one of the best shows I've ever seen she was an incredible performer and uh, of course she didn't do all I want in in the show which (laughs) you know I can't cap it off with that but it was I'm so glad we got to see her that one that one last time but I just like it's really this feels unbelievable that she's she's not here and she was such a mom too she was like real real just kind of like her house and home and kids and I haven't gotten to know that many um, I think when I moved to Nashville I thought I would meet more like mothers who were also musicians but it's really kind of it's not as it's not as uh, common <laughs> as well, you know, and knowing how hard it is, I, it's not surprising, but um, or it wasn't anyway. I think it is more it does seem more common now, you know, people like Margot Price, you know, mm-hmm. you see her tweeting about her kids. And uh-huh. so, you know, but but um, anyway, so that was like a real, real high point of my life to have that all come together with with Ronnie doing that song and still 
you know, it'll, it, that's a great thing about music. You know, she's gone now, but she's like, her spirit lives on forever. Yeah. Creating legacies. Yeah. Both hers and yours. Yeah. Neat. You know, I saw an interview with you where you were talking about some of your early writing being fairly female oriented, but discovering that a lot of men really resonate with that the music resonates with a lot of men and that they would approach you and and tell you about their reactions to the song. It seems like something that I keep learning over and over that we're more alike than we are different uh, men and women. And do you have any thoughts about that in today's climate? I I was trying to, I saw your question about that and your email and I was trying to come up with something clever to say, but I <laughs> No, you're not required to be clever on this podcast. No way. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank no, no, no. You. Bring that right down. <laughs> God. Some nice little sound bite, but I couldn't think of anything. No, I mean, I, I, I guess I was thinking, you know, maybe that is more true than than ever you know even even the even as we learn you know about like bad men you know it kind of emphasizes the you know the difference that there are many many you know decent men and um you know that the, that they're not all bad <laughs> you know i think i think of a song like invisible that i wrote thinking like oh this is a real female thing where nobody notices you after a certain age and and maybe you're kind of relieved in a way but it's also you kind of miss that kind of attention but that really shocked me that 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 men felt <laughs> the same way you know maybe not to as great of an extent but that that they felt kind of you know as they got older kind of diminished a little bit in the eyes of you know just like out and out and about and the workplace or you know just like socially um so you know i i don't want to say it feels like good revenge against men but i guess <laughs> you know that's like haha it, it's gonna get you too <laughs> but but it kind of you know that we're all sort of in the same boat in a way in a lot of your songs it's like um it's almost like you you have like a revenge quality to some of the lyrics and stuff like uh keep it to yourself or cynical girl i mean it seems like you're writing these ultimate revenge songs in some way but they're but they're fun and really both sides can identify with them it's just you have to just have to change the the gender right <laughs> well i think that it comes from being a kind of a you know a mild <laughs> a mild person and just like you know it's it's like if I have the microphone, you know, or I, you know, it's kind of like all of a sudden I turn into more like of a mon, not a monster, <laughs> but it it does feel like uh, it it unleashes, you know, the sort of the the things that I feel like I can't bring myself to say in 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 day to day life, and so um, so I think uh, I the those are the songs that always seem to go over. The best because that's that's pretty much most of us aren't you know aren't aren't these in, intimidating 
bullies, but we probably all have that somewhere inside of us, you know, like that, you know, and it's only afterwards, after some confrontation with a person where you, you know, re realize, oh God, if only I'd said this or that, or, you know, like you, you can't get to it while it's actually happening, but in, in, in bed at night, you imagine like you're, <laughs> you fantasize about how you would get back at this person. Um, so I think I, I think I can give voice to, to that. And, and that, that song, keep it to yourself kind of, you know, like so many of my songs, the, the genesis of it was, was a real life conversation. And I had a new boyfriend and I was telling him about this guy that I'd, been involved with and how awful he'd been to me. And, um, and, and the new boyfriend said, well, do you have his address? <laughs> <laughs> and so I had a, I had a appointment to, it was when I lived in Nashville and I was meeting up with a songwriting friend, Bill Demain the next day. And, and just kind of, he was like, oh, I have this bossa nova kind of thing. And, you know, I told him the story and it just turned into a, the song. A few minutes later, we just had had the whole song. It's such a riot, that song. I mean, the bossa nova thing for me really adds such a cool touch to the whole theme. But also the phrases are really funny there. I mean, just this whole idea of, oh, oh, yeah, I don't want to know about it. But then, you know, some of the phrases they use, yeah, <laughs> if, if he's bought the farm, you know, just keep it to yourself. But then the whole the whole chorus about that, here's his address, here's the make and model of his car. <laughs> it is, it's the, it's the passive aggressive anthem, mm -hmm. I think. Right, uh-huh. Yeah, it's an interesting thought that you that you got to, you know, it's sort of like the flip side of a Catholic school girl upbringing that, yeah, that you get handed a microphone and a guitar and you're like, <laughs> ah, here's my here's my chance. And and that those thoughts are so universal, right, that so many of us relate to those songs. Like you say, those are the ones that go over. I mean, partly they're funny, right, which pulls us in. But right. Yeah, there's something universal about them, too. Thank you. That's what your mother must mean when she says I don't, <laughs> I, that I don't whine. Yeah, no whining. I just, yeah, just, yeah, just revenge. I just get back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just get back. <laughs> yeah, take action, even if it's through somebody else. <laughs> so I have to ask, this, one's, this question's a little bit off the wall here. So another one of the songs that you have is about the beginning of your relationship with the reckless Eric. Uh, who's a musical partner and real life partner. And I lived in Hull for a while because I was working for Smith and Nephew. And so it, it's a, it's an amazing town, actually. Wow, that's your rare American who's I, actually heard of Hull. I know. It's in this dark, dreary corner <laughs> of England. But it's amazing how much music there is in that town. I think everything but the girl came yeah. from there and maybe even some elements of beautiful south might come from there. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so. throbbing and throbbing gristle as well. Okay. Yeah. So So did um, you actually meet in Hull? And and also um kind of the David Bowie band, the Spiders from Mars, Mick Ronson and oh. yeah, they they come from Hull also. So 
but yeah, we did, we did meet in Hull. I think it was the third time I played there. I was just doing some in the, in the early 2000s, doing some touring in the UK and most Americans would not end up playing <laughs> in Hull. It takes like two or three trains to get there. Right. My second gig there, I had played Whole Wide World, uh, Reckless Eric's big hit uh, song. I cover, was covering it and and the promoter said, you know, the next time he booked me, he said, I know you played that Reckless Eric song. He He actually lived here for a while and, you know, people think of that song as coming from Hull. So he, he said, I'm going to have him DJ. He's going to be here for a gig and I'll have him DJ for your show. And um, so that, so he was there and um, it turned out that it was in a room above a pub. And it turned out that that was the first place he had ever played a oh. wide world back before he became a pop star back before he recorded it. Yeah. It was like, he wrote the song and played it when he was an art student there. Anyway, I was living in Nashville at the time and I was like, you know, kind of in a show busy way, like call us and like, let's get him up here and play the song with me. And, um, <laughs> during my set, come and, on up, Eric, <laughs> and he, he was, I didn't, you know, I didn't know he's like the opposite of showbiz kind of, and, and, <laughs> and he, he came up and he, I actually have a picture of it happening. He's looking at my hands and he said, this, song has two chords and both of yours are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite what you expected being in showbiz. <laughs> cause I was, cause I was playing it in a, a and D and his, he always played it in E and a. So anyway, <laughs> but, um, but, but that, you know, and, and we kind of struck up a, a friendship, but did, never really saw, we didn't see each other again for a couple of years after oh. after that night um i didn't see him again until the the band yola tango who for years have done uh hanukkah shows in in uh new new york and new jersey they have this string of shows for eight nights and they'd have special guests and they had reckless eric and um my group the shams and in 2004 and so so i got to reconnect with him again but and as the song said like we were both with other people and <laughs> it kind of took a little while but eventually we found each other again and 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 moved to france together for like our third that's what we say for our third date we moved to france <laughs> yeah this song the song tells the story about getting a phone call from him if i if i have that straight where he tells you that he's no longer attached it's such a yeah again, you know that everyday moment but such a profound thing right when something like that happens you get it, that phone call it was and i and i it was back when they were starting to tell people like don't talk on your phone and pump gas at the same time but but I, I was, <laughs> forget that. I'm taking this call. <laughs> I was like, well, a four, four, oh, oh, what's this? Yeah. Like it, it was clearly a number from overseas. And so anyway, <laughs> it was like, I can remember then that's, that's all part of my next book is the, 
another I, I'm working on another book this one is called Girl to Country it's kind of yeah like going to Nashville and then ending ending up in Cleveland <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, I, I won't ask when we might expect to see it since it might be, yeah, it might be 10 years. Well, no, I might not live another 10 years. So uh, this one I'm going to just knock out. Mm. I can't put that much time into a, a book again. Yeah, it's it's got to gotta get these things done now. I, 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 I went through it the first time I felt like I was really learning how to do it. So this one I'm kind of putting a putting a, myself on a schedule and just kind of like get it done, get it out and keep moving along. Cause we don't know how much more time we have, you know, like, you know, seeing, seeing so many friends and, you know, the, just a few days ago, just hearing that Ronnie passed away, you know, like it, our time is not limitless. So get these things done. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole different world now with, with illness and everything. Part, part of it's our age, but the other part is just so unknown now. Yeah, what we've all just been through, it's um, it does make it seem much more like you just have to, you know, work work with the time we have and as as productively as we can. Yeah, get things done. I know that you saw Michael Nesmith play last year. Um, I I saw him here in. Uh, California. And um, did you ever get to meet uh, Mike at all? No, uh, I'm, I'm sad to say I didn't, but really so grateful that we went to see the Monkees tour. And um, I, I think what drew me, you know, I was a big fan, of course, back when I was like seven or eight and, and you know, kind of checked back in with them from time to time. I was part of a monkey's tribute in New York back in the late nineties. And I covered some of Shelley's blues, which I love that Mike Nesmith song, but I heard, I heard uh, that song Rio came up in a shuffle um, back in the summer. And I just was like, God, Mike Nesmith is, you know, like I, I wish, I wish I'd spent more time like looking into what he's been up to all this time and we have to go see the monkeys when they tour again and and so then they were out and and so we we went and um i knew their road manager their manager andrew um he he got us back there was no backstage because of of covid restrictions but we got to we got to meet mickey in the parking lot (laughs) um and he was super sweet he was he was just really nice and air and the monkeys had recorded whole wide world at one point so he was really excited to meet eric because they had put it on a record and i was friends with the steel player pete finney and he was riding on mike's bus and he said but yeah mike mike's like you know he doesn't he's not meeting anybody right now and um so we didn't get to to meet him but um i would have been too shy anyway he was <laughs> he was my big monkey crush so <laughs> but anyway what a what a great show i i'd heard that he wasn't doing well like health wise and that he was maybe not you know that present on stage but honestly like he he was just like absorbing the love of the audience and 
sending it back out just like he he was just he was music like on stage he was all the things he'd ever been you know like he it was just coming across so beautifully I feel really lucky that we got to see him and I think that's something to remember also not to keep going into a dark place but like go see your heroes like any chance you can just like Go, don't don't say well you know it's hard to say right now like do you want to do you want to be in a crowd but you know if you can safely go to a show you know like do it yeah he reminds me you know when you look back at his life work his legacy it, you know he reminds me of you both of you you know very productive right but in multiple areas and yeah, interesting. I, I don't know Ronnie Spector's work well enough to be able to say the same, but I do notice the affection that audiences have for all three of you, for Ronnie, um, Michael Nesmith, and for you. Yeah, there's a connection there somehow. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think about similarities between all three of you on the surface. You oh, might not look You might not look all that similar, but there's something there. Yeah, some common threads. Wow, well, that's 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 really flattering. I, I think, yeah, the, you know, Ronnie, even in her way, she's always been a maverick, and I think Mike Nesbeth certainly like just seemed to kind of do things his own way. So it's really something to, that's really something to look up to, and and my husband the same way. Reckless Eric, he's completely just you know follows his own path and it's not always easy and it's not always clear <laughs> what to do but I think that's the way to keep going you know you can't just follow a script that feels like it's been set out for you you kind of just have to keep making it up I saw a clip on YouTube the other day that was you and Eric and you were do playing at a a Bowie tribute or something and he you guys did five years oh, and it was yeah. a fantastic version was it good i i oh, yeah I, I haven't haven't watched it yet but i felt like it was good when we i when they invited us to do that song and i was like like eric has to be the you know like i want to play on it but i just always wanted to hear him do that and so it, it felt it felt like it was good when we oh did it was it. really good and he oh, his good. voice was this powerful and and you could i could tell you guys were having a lot of fun up there yeah, I think it was the first time that we'd played, you know, with people <laughs> since, you know, since the pandemic started. It was definitely the first show, even though there was no live audience. It was like an actual, you know, stage and other musicians and microphones and all and all that. Yeah. So that was kind of like a nice feeling. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, on this theme about Ronnie, Michael, and you, it's starting to sound like a song. Um, <laughs> you know, I think all three of you had such appreciation for music outside of your own particular genre, or at least for you, you've just played in so many different types of music. I was, I thought it was really fun. I watched you perform uh, Dancing with Joey Ramone. Yeah, it was just really fun to see that type of song performed on an acoustic guitar, right? That's not what you <laughs> expect, but it's the energy, right? It's the it's the spirit of that song. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like it must be really fun to perform it. So so tell it, me about that song. 
that song is always fun to perform. And I think <laughs> I usually say like, and I'm going to really keep a good handle on this and not lose control <laughs> every time I played. And then it just kind of like, it just fills me with so much joy and energy that I just kind of, I lose, I, you know, hopefully I execute it well enough, but I, I just kind of, I, it's like a spirit, like just comes through. And I, I, I always end up kind of punking out, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I wrote that song when I lived in Nashville and I, and I had just gotten this new guitar and I, had it in my room and I dreamt basically that I mean the whole lyric all the lyrics are just like from a dream I just got up oh. and wrote them down right away except for the bridge with all the song titles the worst that can happen by the Brooklyn Bridge. like that was more I kind of worked on that a little bit and was like it has to be songs that would be on a Joey Ramone like that he would listen to you know like so I had to kind of kind of work on that part a little bit more but but the rest just kind of spilled out like um it, it just was one of those dreams that felt so real you know that you just were like maybe I maybe I really did you know like go on to another plane and you know another astral plane and and maybe it really did happen but um I it, you know I never had danced with him in real life but I'd certainly <laughs> I'd certainly been in the room with him seen him play a bunch of times and I'd met him once um and just uh, he was another person I always felt like um you know just felt like he was a kindred spirit or something so um it felt like this this could have happened you know yeah there's something a little bit otherworldly about it, which makes sense that it comes from a dream. It it reminds me a little bit of Jonathan Richmond's dance, Dancing in the Lesbian Bar. Uh -huh. I heard that song. There's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's sort of yeah. like this, yeah, I'm totally out of place and I'm having a blast. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a Jonathan Richmond fan too. So we've talked about a lot about music in our past podcasts and i was wondering what your maybe your favorite all-time record is it can be yours it can be someone else's i'm just curious do you have a, a favorite record that you go to in different times um i guess it it changes a lot there's and there's moments in certain records like um that will always like like say the beginning of goodbye yellow brick road you know like love lies bleeding just that that kind of like the the segue from funeral for a friend into love lies bleeding if you know the elton john like i'm a big elton john fan and just i think that that kind of moment where this kind of funeral march kind of switches into this like incredible rocking song that'll always be one of my top ones just because it announced <laughs> something to me like you know definitely announced the beginning of a great album but I went to see Elton John that was kind of like my first big important concert and that's how it started and then like there he was <laughs> playing the piano and so that you know like I still get chills thinking about that like 
like it, this is real, you know, like <laughs> um, so like I said, it 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 can change from minute to minute, not dark yet. The Bob Dylan track is definitely probably the one that I've like listened to more than any. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only discovered it a couple of years ago. I I missed that album when I, you know, cause it came out the same year as diary of a mod housewife. And so I was so busy doing my own thing. I missed one of the great Bob Dylan moments, you know, but that's a great thing about music. Like you find it when it's going to be important and speak for you. It's not, you know, it's of the moment, but then it can hopefully be timeless too. Yeah. I think that's really it such a great thing about being a writer or musician is the work that you leave behind so people can still appreciate you. Yeah. I think that's really important. I'm thinking about the switch in yellow brick road. It's surprising, right? When that happens, it's a surprise seems to be kind of something that you enjoy, right? Maybe for yourself or, or for bringing it to others. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good point. Cause I, I write this blog diary of Amy Rigby. And, um, you know, so I try like back in the like big blogging days, mostly when I, when I lived in France and this was when blogging was kind of peaking, there was like mommy blogs and expat blogs. And it was just like a community. Basically it was a way to kind of, I was kind of living in isolation. So it was like a good way to have a community. Um, I feel like I was blogging like almost every, not every day, but like at least once a week and more, and um, it's kind of gotten down more to like once a month or twice a month, but I still kind of make it a job that I do. I I do um, just you know to keep keep in practice to keep writing. And over the course of the pandemic, I started doing it as a podcast too, recording them and and usually like working up a piece of music to put into the into the piece. Um, oh. But. So, but anytime I write write one, I find I often do that in the opening, in the lead, or whatever you want to call it. Like I, I set it up so that it's almost like, you know, it's I don't want it to be a gimmick, but it's almost like I start talking about something that could be something else, but then it turns out to be something as mundane as a as a pair of pants. You know, I make it. So- <laughs> I make it sound like I'm going to be talking about this big thing. And then it turns out to just be some little, some, some day-to-day thing. But I think I, it's like, I sneak up on the larger themes or topics myself, you know, because I don't want to, you don't want to tell someone like, let's talk about like mortality. Let's talk about like, you know, um, dealing with, you know, a, 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 an aging parent and all the hard, you know, like, it's just like, I, I don't know about you. I would just probably turn the page or like jump to something else pretty quickly. If someone told me they were going to try to tell me about like some really heavy stuff and I don't even want to write about it when I think about it that way. But if I think about it as something really small, and that's the same with songwriting. If it's little small details and then it just kind of adds up and then you realize like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm talking about like my life here. I'm talking about like something that's really kind of heavy, but I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. I think it's an element of wit, right? Is a surprise, right? Maybe. There's often, yeah, there's often a little bit of a, a catch to it, right? Sort of a little gotcha. 
Right. And that, that somehow makes it feel like it goes down easier. Um, You don't want to whine like your mom says, and you don't want to, you don't want to preach. You don't want to preach. Preach, Yeah. And you don't, Uh and you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to preach and you don't want to like expound or, you know, you, you want to, you, you just want to engage and, and the details are usually the, the kind of the manageable way, I think, to, to, to get it at stuff that's really kind of heavy. Yeah. Or have that connection, right? Mm-hmm. I, I noticed that a lot as people talk about your songs is they feel a connection to you through your, through your songs. And it, it is amazing. I think maybe from reading a lot of fiction, how can the details of somebody's life in another century in a whole other world, like how can you, how can you feel yourself in that same situation? But if they're the right details, Mm -hmm. um, you're there and you're relating it to your own life. And I think, I, I think that that's definitely, I've found that with like the song about me and Eric it's all very specific to our relationship, yet it feels like someone else can kind of go like, I have that person, you know, I have those kind of memories with my person. They're not the exact same ones, but they feel like that. Mm-hmm. Well, Amy, it's just been so lovely to talk this to you. This is so Thank nice to again. talk. <laughs> <laughs> We've enjoyed it so much. It's really fun. Thank Good. you so much. I feel like, yeah, this could go on for I know, <laughs> right? such a long time. I really appreciate you guys having such nice questions. And I, I think I've just like missed talking to people. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, it's nice that we have podcasts. Fortunately, yes. uh, this pandemic lends itself well, well to podcasts. Um, so before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Any places you'd like to refer them to or anything you're promoting? This is your moment. Sure. Um, well, you can find me at amyrigby.com. And I, um, th- through the pandemic, I've been putting some songs up, recordings up on Bandcamp. And oh. um and uh, working on another album, working on another book, as I said, I've got my blog, Diary of Amy Rigby, uh, that's at WordPress, um, and the podcast that goes along with that. And, um, and I've, I've, another thing I've been doing a lot of is, is printing, screen printing, and, oh. and now I'm getting into relief printing, and I've been making these tea towels. Oh, um, how cool. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a dancing with Joey Ramone tea towel and, um, and uh, <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, it's, but it started with a diary of a mod housewife tea towel that seemed the most appropriate. And then I, and yeah, t-shirt and, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of another thing that I'm that kind of, the, the, the pandemic gave us like, to, gave me time to, to work on all kinds of stuff. I used to spend so much time driving from gig to gig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like, you know, it's nice to have some time to do some more work on music and writing and, and art. So, so that's, yeah, fine. All, all that stuff's out there. 
And I'll include all of that in the show notes. So for oh, those of you who are, yeah, those of you who are out there panicking, trying to find a paper to write this down <laughs> on, don't worry, I'll put it in the show notes. All right, Amy, all thank right. you so much. And Bill, thank you again, as always, for being my partner in crime. And Amy, th- thank you for joining us. And hey, if you ever want to talk again with us, just let it just drop us a line. I will. <laughs> I will. When I get that book, that next book done in the next year or so, uh, I will. And the album. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.